Oh man, what makes me happy? I don't know, a lot of stuff makes me happy. Doing something that I really like care about. Probably the biggest thing is relationship. Like awesome people make me more happy. Happiness is uh, a feeling that comes from inside. Doing something good in the world and seeing a tangible change as a result of it. Food. And mostly helping other people. Laughing, reading. Spending time in nature or like plants. I'm sure there is more to life. I think if you can achieve great happiness in your life, then you've done pretty well. More to life than what I'm doing right now? Huh, that's a tough one. I would hope that there is something more than this. I don't, honestly. But I'm not upset about it, really. Um, I feel like there is some kind of purpose. Um, I haven't really figured it out. I think that uh, we're more or less just chemicals. There's a lot of secrets to life. The only certainty is there's more, but some agnostic as to what. I mean, the body is just a physical aspect, a physical manifestation of a spiritual experience. I don't know, I don't know if there's anything after this. I don't know if there's, I don't know. There has to be something bigger than my life. Yeah, I think there's more than this life. I think humans have something built into them that wants more, and I don't think that that would be there if it was only this. Interesting. The second question you heard people asked was, is there more to life than this? Now, you might not have agreed with all their answers. I'm sure you didn't. But I'm sure we can all agree that that is an incredibly important question. Is there more to life than this? It's such an important question that it's often called one of the first order questions of life, along with what am I doing on earth? What is the point of life? What is the purpose of my life? And where am I heading? They're called the first order questions because the implications of the answers are huge. I mean, how you answer those questions affects what relationships you, you have in life. Uh, it could affect how you're going to work, where you're going to work, how you're going to spend your days, where you're going to live. If you can answer those first order questions, then life seems to flow out of that. But paradoxically, most of us get answers to those first order questions of life second. If at all, how come? Because though those questions are very important, they aren't urgent. It's the urgent questions of life that we have to answer every day. And it's the urgent questions of life that, that take our time, our energy, our direction. Things like, what am I going to make for dinner? Is that not urgent? Or where am I going to get the money to get the food for dinner? That's even more urgent. How am I going to get one kid to uh, baseball lessons and get the other one to do his homework at the same time? Uh, where am I going to live? How am I going to pay the rent? Those are the urgent questions of life. And some have called these urgent questions of life the tyranny of the urgent. The tyranny of the urgent is we have to think about them all the time. They demand our energy. They demand our time. And it seems like we're never able to sit down, set them aside, and say, I'm not going to focus on those for a while. I'm going to focus on the most important questions of life. Is there more to life than this? And that's what I love about Alpha is because we're going to do that. 
We're going to set aside two hours a week for several weeks here on Sunday mornings, and we're going to focus on the first order questions of life. We're going to do it in a safe environment with other people who are looking for the same thing, and we're going to do it in an environment where we encourage questions, whereas my wife said earlier, no questions too simple, ask anything. No questions too hostile, and no opinion is uh, invalid. We want everyone to share, because it's in learning together that we can come up with the answers to these questions. Now, I said we're going to explore these questions in a Christian context, and let me talk about that more in just a few minutes. Wanting to know these first-order questions of life is sometimes referred to as spiritual hunger. You're wanting something more. You're sensing that there's more than just going to work and coming home and, and that kind of thing. There has to be answers to these bigger questions in life. Bernard Levin was a columnist in England in the last century. And as he looked at society all around him, he wrote on the subject of spiritual hunger a lot. Here's what he said. Countries like ours are full of people who have all the material comforts they desire, together with such non-material blessings as a happy family, and yet lead lives of desperation. Understand nothing but the fact that there's a hole inside of them. And however much food and drink they pour into it, however many cars and television sets they stuff into it, how many well-balanced children and loyal friends they put around the edges of it, it still aches. Maybe you can relate to that. Maybe when the urgent questions have been answered, maybe when it's late at night, maybe when you just have a moment in bed to reflect on, is there more to life than this? You can sense that, this, this desire for, for something more to fill that part on the inside of you. And as I said, we're going to look for the answers to these first-order questions, but I also said we're going to do it in a Christian context. And the reason we're going to do that is because at the heart of Christianity, there is a person, Jesus of Nazareth, who said this. He said, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Now you think about bread. Bread's the thing that fills us. Bread is the staff of life. Bread is the thing that satisfies us. And Jesus said he could answer these first-order questions of life. He, he was the answer to these first-order questions of life. He could fill the emptiness inside of each one of us. So that's where we're going to look. But the challenge in doing that is that we live in America, and all of us have some exposure to Christianity. I mean, everybody has some exposure to Christianity, whether they've flipped on uh, a talk show, uh, whether they went to a Christian television show one time, their aunt, their uncle, their grandparent. And so all of us, when it comes into exploring these first-order questions in the context of Christianity, all of us already come into it with preconceived ideas. Actually, we come into it with something called a confirmation bias. Have you ever heard that term, confirmation bias? Let me define it for you. It's a tendency for people to gather information or respond to a circumstance in a way that confirms 
their already established beliefs and ideas. We have confirmation bias throughout our life. We already form opinions. So when we see something new, when we're presented with some new ideas, we see it through the filter of what we already think. So as I was thinking about today, I thought there's probably going to be people here uh, in one of four categories when it comes to confirmation bias, when it comes to looking into the, the, uh, the Christian faith for answers to these important questions. I thought of this. There's probably going to be people here who think that when it comes to Christianity, it basically is untrue. It's untrue. How did you arrive at that opinion? Well, how do we arrive at any opinion in life? Uh, our experience, what we've seen, what we've read, what we've learned in school, people we know that said they were Christians. We've been watching that. We've been observing that. Some of you have. And you've concluded that this whole thing really isn't true at all. Now, if that's you, then you are so welcome here. Thank you for being here today. Because that speaks volumes about you. It speaks volumes about your character. It says, first of all, you're the kind of person who's not just going to accept something because somebody told you. I mean, you, you think through things, and you have reasons why you believe that. And that's obviously why you do believe it. But it also says about you that you're willing to think a little differently. That's why you're here. You're willing to, you have your thought, but you're willing to try to break out of that confirmation bias to think, well, maybe let me learn more. Let me ask more. Let me discover more. Now, Jesus said, I am the truth. But you're the kind of person that just doesn't buy that because somebody says it. You're from Missouri, as the old saying goes, the show me state. You, someone's got to show you why that is true. You need evidence. And again, if that's you, you will really enjoy Alpha. You will because you'll be surprised, maybe astonished by how much evidence there really is for Jesus for the Christian faith, how much evidence there is, how many very intelligent people have come to the conclusion after examining the evidence that there was a Jesus, he was real, he did die, he did come back to life again, that, it, that it's true. Among them are historians. One former professor of modern history at Oxford University said that the resurrection of Jesus was the best attested fact in history. Huh, how could that be? How did he come to that conclusion? We'll be talking about that in the weeks ahead. There are scientists who have come to the same conclusion. Uh, some of the famous scientists throughout history were believers in Jesus. People like Newton, Kepler, Galileo, Faraday, Boyle, some of the brilliant minds of science have concluded, yeah, it's all true. One of the greatest scientists of our time, a man named Francis Collins, who's the director of the Human Genome Project, one of the most respected genetic biologists in the world, talks about how he investigated all the evidence of Christianity and was amazed. Because, you know, if you're not raised around that evidence, 
then you just think it's something that somebody believes because their grandmother told them or their, their uncle told them. But he investigated, and after investigating it, looking into the historical evidence for Jesus, he said one day he was overwhelmed by it. He finally, according to his own words, knelt in the dewy grass outside of his uh, laboratory and there gave his life to Jesus Christ, not out of emotion, but out of investigation. So, when Jesus said, I am the truth, it's very important to understand what he meant. Truth in the Hebrew understanding of the word means not just here, but here. And when he said, I am the truth, what he was talking about was, you can experience me. First, look at the evidence, figure out if it's true historically, but then you can get to know this historical person in reality, that kind of truth. Let me explain it to you. Suppose years ago, I found a book in a library called Joanna, the Amazing Woman. Now, my wife's name is Joanna, but suppose years ago I found the book. Look at this book, Joanna, the Amazing Woman. And I started thumbing through the chapters. Chapter 1, her extraordinary intelligence. Huh, what an interesting person. I'd like to meet that person, Joanna. Chapter 2, her sparkling personality. Chapter 3, her remarkable character. Now, if I had looked at that book and looked at the chapters, I would have thought, wow, this person must be amazing. I'd like to get to know them someday. I'd have head knowledge of them, but no heart knowledge. I don't really know them. But now I can tell you, after four decades of being married to Joanna, the remarkable woman, that what it said in the book is true. If you're open to that while you're here, you, there's a good chance you might discover that it's true. There is a Jesus, did live, did die, did come back to life again. And if you're open, you can discover that it might go from here to here. There's a second group of people here today. And to you, Christianity is not untrue. Matter of fact, you don't know if it's true or you don't know if it's not true. But Either way, it's really not that important to you because to you, Christianity is not relevant. It's not relevant. It, it could be true. It could not be true. But what in the world does it have to do with your life? You don't see it. You don't see that it really has to do much with you. Now, out of all the categories I'm going to mention today, that was me for most of my life. I was raised in church, so I was around Christianity. I was around the Christian faith all of my life. But it seemed to me like there was no connection between believing that and how I lived my life. I didn't see what it had to do with my day-to-day -day life. It was largely irrelevant. I thought Jesus was someone you were supposed to believe in, and Christianity was a meeting to attend on Sunday morning for an hour. But then when it was over... Then real life began. Then cruising Main Street. I grew up in Southern California. Uh, cruising Main Street, playing sports, trying to get a girlfriend, hanging out with my guy friends. I mean, that was life, and I didn't see how what Christianity had to do with that. So I looked in other places, not denying the Christian faith, but looked in other places for meaning, for purpose, for relevance to my life. And I'm not the only one who's ever done that. 
Let me tell you the story of Leo Tolstoy. He wrote War and Peace, which has been called the greatest novel of all time. Uh, he wrote many books. He was a brilliant man in Russia. He also wrote a book later on called A Confession, where he told the story of how he looked for uh, the answers to the first order questions all around the world. He said he started a journey looking for the meaning and purpose of life. At first, he said, I thought, life's just about having a good time. Make the most out of it. Have fun. So he entered into the social world of Moscow and St. Petersburg. He drank heavily. He was promiscuous. He led a wild life. But after doing that for a while, he found that wasn't it. That wasn't satisfying that spiritual hunger inside of him. And then he said he thought, well, maybe money's the answer. He'd inherited a lot of money, and he wanted to make a lot of money out of his books as well. But he found that money, in his own words, was kind of like seawater. The more you drink of it, the more thirsty you are. It didn't satisfy. So then he said he thought, well, maybe fame, importance, success. If I can be really successful, then the spiritual hunger, the spiritual ache in me will go away. And so he wrote what the Encyclopedia Britannica described as one of the greatest novels in the whole world. And yet he still wasn't satisfied. And so then he thought this. Well, maybe it's all about relationships, marriage, family life. So he got married in 1862. He had a very happy family and 13 children. <laughs> you would think that that would do it. I mean, wouldn't that be it? Isn't that the, the apex of life? Doesn't that satisfy everything that we're looking for? But he said all it did was distract him from his search for the meaning of life. I bet it did. He was surrounded by what looked like he had everything. And if you had looked at his life, you would have said, wow, you got everything. You got happiness. You got money. You got fame. But the one question, why am I here? What is the purpose of my life would never leave him. And he started to think this, well, the philosophers must have the answer. The scientists must have the answer. So he searched in all of those areas to the question, why do I live? And he said the only thing he found was this answer. In the infinity of space and the infinity of time, in infinitely small particles mutate with infinite complexity. That's the meaning of life. And he said it really didn't satisfy but after he had tried everything, and you know, when you have a confirmation bias that Christianity is not relevant, you won't look there until you've looked everywhere else in life, everywhere else in life. But after he looked basically everywhere, he said he started looking at the poor people of Russia, the peasants of Russia. He started visiting the villages of the people who were religious, those who believed in Jesus. And he found that in those people, there was a joy despite their poverty. There was a satisfaction despite their circumstances in life. That they had discovered the purpose of their life. He said it was the last place he would ever look. But when he looked there, he found it. Jesus claimed, I am the way. I'm the way to God. I'm the way to 
discovering the answer to these questions in your life. And some of you are going to discover that during Alpha. If you'll come back week after week and ask enough questions and listen to people's stories and just give it a shot, though you might think it's not there, you might just discover that in the story of Jesus, in Jesus himself, is the answer to these things. And what a difference it's going to make. There's a third group of people here, I believe, today. And your confirmation bias is, is this. You think Christianity is boring. <laughs> so uh, is it true? You don't know. It might be. It might not be. But uh, is it relevant? Possibly. But it's just, frankly, boring. And I, I, I'm not interested in it. It doesn't captivate my intellect. It doesn't grip my emotions. It's not the kind of thing that I see worth putting any kind of effort into, even if it is real. But you're here. And again, that speaks so well of you. And I think you're here because part of you might be hoping against hope that that's not true. Hoping against hope that it can be intellectually fulfilling. It can be emotionally satisfying. That there can be in the Christian faith something that's worth giving your time, your energy, your life to, that it can drive you and compel you just as much as your football uh, love or your love of hiking or whatever else. More than that, it can be something to give yourself to. Jesus said, I am the life I've come that you may have life and life in its fullness, but you haven't experienced it, but you're open to. You might be surprised that you can. You might be surprised you can. Jesus said, I've come to give you life in its fullness. How does he do that? Well, he eliminates, if you allow him to do that, he eliminates the stuff in your life that makes life not very fulfilling. He can help eliminate the habits, the hurts, the hang-ups, the things in your life that, that cause it to be not what you're looking for. And he can give you new purpose for living your life, life to the full. Now, there's one other thing I want to talk about today, one other group of people today. I think there's a number of people here today who, when it comes to Christianity, find it to be true, true, and meaningful. Your Christian faith, your, your believing in Jesus, you, you have found it to be true, and it's meaningful to you. But what you haven't found is deep, satisfying relationships with other people who have found the same thing. It's very much a private thing to you. You've gone to churches before, but there's never seemed to be this, this connection with other people that's fulfilling and deep and satisfying. You've read in the Bible all the one another's. There's 50 of them love one another and, and, and uh, support one another, encourage one another, but you feel isolated from it. You feel like you're on the outside looking in. Well, maybe other people have discovered that, but, but not you. If that's you then that can really change. How do I know? Because I have overseen the Alpha course many times before. And I have seen people just like you who come, who 
really aren't connected with other folks, haven't found deep, meaningful relationships. And after spending time together, eating together, talking together, being open and free to share their lives together, starting out slow, we all do. When you first start talking to people, it's always, you know, cliches and how are you and how's the weather. You got to start someplace. But by the end, looking back, saying, you know what? This has been a special time for me. And that can happen to you if you're willing to invest two hours on a Sunday this fall to see that happen.